Well, if you have your Bible, go to the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. If you don't know where that is, just ask the person next to you. They'll help you scroll on your phone or find it in your Bible. Mark 1, 16 through 20. Keep it open the whole time. We're going to work through uh, these verses, especially verses 16 through 18. I probably should turn there as well. As Pastor Eric kicked off last week, the book of Mark, uh, helping us understand that when Jesus intervenes in a life, he did not come just to change a little bit about you. He did not come to just change most about you. When Jesus comes into your life, when you become a follower of Christ, there is not an area of your life, a stone that is left unturned, a shadow that is not lit There is not a squared off corner section of your life that does not get affected by following Jesus. Jesus changes everything. The context of the book of Mark leading up to verse 16 in chapter 1 is a group of people who have been long awaiting someone who was supposed to come and change everything. God's people in Israel, as they were waiting there in the, 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 the region of Palestine uh, that God's people existed in at this time, they were waiting for someone known as Messiah, the Christ, who would come, who would change everything about their way of life. Now, the change that the Messiah would bring is different than what they were expecting. You see, they were expecting someone who would come and make everything right for them again, as if it ever had been that way in this world. They were expecting someone who would come and help them be the superior people who would rule over everybody else in their kind of folklore mixed with Christianity in their minds, how it used to be, but it was never really like that. And the Messiah who came did come and bring in another kingdom, but the kingdom that Jesus leads and that his people join is a kingdom that is not of this world, but is something that is otherworldly and eternal and greater than anything they could even imagine. It's something that only God himself could work out. In fact, that's why Mark begins in chapter 1, the first few verses, pointing back to the book of Isaiah, very first, very first few verses, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the story, the message, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That word means Messiah, the Son of God. As it's written in the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years ago, I send my messenger who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And a guy named John showed up and said, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And the one who is coming is not just another prophet, he is God himself, God, the the son of God. And this message that Mark wants us to see, what Jesus came to proclaim, and in his short gospel that Mark, Mark focuses on, in verse 14, through, 14 and 15, Mark says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, this good news, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." 
that a message has come for those who are waiting of God's good news that he has arrived and the way to enjoy and embrace this good news is to repent, turn from the way you're going and believe God and follow him. You see, this is a message we take for granted because we often hear it, well, so often. But this message fell on ears that had not heard from a prophet of God in more than 400 years. Wandering and confused, a message twisted and twisted and twisted again, manipulated by those who were leading God's people to establish themselves as superior. You see, this otherworldly message that everything changes when Jesus comes was a radical message that they would put Jesus to death for. But it's the message that God's people needed to hear because left by ourselves, we will manipulate the message of God to establish ourselves as superior over others. But the message of the gospel is much different than that. It's that to be the greatest among all, you're to be the least among all. To be raised high, you're to be brought low. To find yourself in a position of pride before the God of all things is to actually bring yourself to a place of humility. The good news is that those who believe in the Messiah would forever be able to follow God and his people were on a pathway not following him. In Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, we find four heavy hitters in the, in the work of the New Testament, four of the people who were in the inner circle of Jesus' earthly ministry, four people who would become apostles, and four people who desperately needed the good news of the gospel. You see, they needed the good news because they were walking just like those who I described. They were waiting for something that was different than God had intended. They were a part of the system that had twisted the truth of God's word to be something entirely different. And they needed to hear from God himself because they in their lifetime had never heard a prophet of God. Until Jesus came and changed everything. Changed everything. And in a way, they had no idea what they were getting into. In fact, look at what Mark writes in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Mark writes, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, verse 19, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Here's what we're going to learn this morning. I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to really start the sermon. This morning, this passage is going to teach us that Jesus sees you and he calls you and he calls you to follow him and to keep following him. And here's why you need to know that. The call to be a Christian, the call to be a follower of Christ 
absolutely happens in a moment or a process that leads to a moment where you realize you desperately need God. But that's not all to being a follower of Christ. It is a moment that leads to a ministry of a lifetime. It is a decision that leads to the direction of your life. It is a call to not just follow Jesus, but to continue to keep following Jesus. And that's what this passage is going to teach us. So let's pray, and then let's begin learning Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. And if you still haven't found it, that whole thing was just so you could find where it is, all right? So Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, let's pray, then let's dive into the text. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding from what you have to say to us in Mark 1, 16 through 20. Lord, I pray that you'd open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, our minds to believe, our hearts to follow. Lord, help us to walk out of here because of your word, more in love with Jesus and more like him than when we came in. And it's in your name we pray, amen. You've, you've been somewhere before where you got into something and did not realize what you were getting into until you got into it, right? I've, I uh, have this conversation all the time with uh, young married couples. It is a beautiful conversation where they are so excited about the wedding, and they ought to be. And they're really excited the first few months of marriage, and they ought to be. And then around month six or eight, I have a conversation and say, how's it going? And they say, this is great. I didn't know it'd be this hard, right? And I get to encourage them in premarital counseling and remind them again, it gets wonderful around year 30, statistically. And so you're like, you got like 29 and a half years to go. You're going to be great. Just stick to it. Stick to the process, and they begin saying, I did not know it was this hard. Now, for you who are single, not everything about marriage is hard, but there are hard things about marriage. Or for someone who just had a baby, it's so awesome to visit them in the hospital, and the next day when uh, their endorphins are still on a high, and it's their very first kid, and uh, they're really excited about the whole process, and adrenaline is flowing, and they say, I cannot believe that he or she is mine, and then a few days later, when they haven't slept since they said that, they're saying, I did not know it would be like this. Or uh, maybe you have found yourself like getting promoted at work or uh, making rank in the military, and in that moment, you you are so excited to finally be in charge. And then six months later, you're in charge. You know, you go, I did not know it would be like this. Here's, here's why I want to share that with you so we can linger in that for a moment where when we get into something realizing we did not know what we were getting into, I want you to feel that because God himself and his relationship with you never has that moment. He never, ever walks in relationship with you and says, I did not realize that you would be like this. Now, you may turn and have that response to him. I did not know you would demand this of me. But there is never a moment where God in his 
uh, in his complete knowledge of who you are, who you really are, beyond who you think you are, the deepest depths, the corners of your soul that you hide from yourself and others, where he does not know exactly what's there and still calls you anyways. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Jesus is passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he looks out, and he sees fishermen. Now, I had a season in life where I spent a lot of time with people who made their living on the ocean, and the reality of the culture of fishermen is probably true of the reality of sailors today. They're not the most <laughs> high-class people <laughs> for the most part. I, I, I was there. I, I can say that. Right? You, they, they have a culture about them. You see, we forget sometimes when we see Peter and James and John and Andrew that they actually had a life before Jesus. In fact, you don't even have to know the life before Jesus to read about their life following Jesus to realize that these guys were not perfect from the beginning, nor were till the very end. I mean, we're talking Peter, Peter, who became the leader of the group, actually James, historians, or it doesn't matter, like Peter, who became like the mouthpiece of the group, when Jesus was being crucified, after he Jesus told Peter, like, you're going to deny me, he's like, no, I will not. He's like cussing out a slave girl, denying him like crazy. I have no idea who this is. Peter, confronted by Paul in the book of Galatians, even after he's leading the church, because he was going back to his former Jewish way of life and neglecting those who need the gospel. We're looking at Andrew. Now, I really don't have anything bad to say about Andrew because I really just try to stick to Scripture and what we, what we know, but and Andrew was one of the disciples who, when Jesus was crucified, all of them abandoned him. We're talking about James and John. They come up to a city of, uh, of uh, Gentiles and uh, they deny kind of the gospel and, and they move about on their way. And James and John are like, Jesus, James is like, do you want me to call fire down on this city? Like, I will just call fire from heaven as if like that was his to do or whatever. Like super passionate, super devoted. This guy, James, also abandoned Jesus. And then we have John. John's story is really interesting. Other than Paul, he wrote uh, the second most of the New Testament, the book of John and all the Johns, first, second, and third John, and then like the book of Revelation, like, like John the Apostle, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, or in here it's Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Uh, uh, he, uh, at the crucifixion of Jesus, or when they go to arrest him. He is like um, the, 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 the gentle guy. Everyone loves him, super social. And every interaction of the gospel that John shows up, he's with somebody else. Uh, when he is with Jesus at the very end, he's the one that they grab his robe. He literally is so desperate to abandon Jesus, he leaves his robe and runs naked from everybody and then tags Jesus along to the crucifixion from a distance. Here's why I'm telling you these things. Number one, because they're in the Bible, but number two, you need to know these were just four ordinary guys. There's nothing special or unique about them. 
In fact, Jesus is walking along, and he sees them for where they are, and he, in his omnipotence, knows exactly what's going to happen. And he calls them anyways. You see, you need to know that God sees you. He, he sees you. There is never a moment of illusion where God looks at your life and says, oh, they're good to go. That's not even the gospel, is it? The gospel is that God sees you while you are an enemy. God sees you while you are dead in your sin. God sees you while you are a trespasser. God sees you as the one for whom he had to die just to make the way for you to come back to him. And he calls you anyways. He sees every corner of your life that you hide from others. He sees every mask that you put up so that others would not see what's behind it. He knows you deeper than you know yourself, and he saved you from more sin that you will, than you will ever be aware of. He sees all of that and still calls you anyways. You see, when God calls you, he has already taken into account your stupidity. He's already taken into account the ways that you will fail him. And he calls you anyways. He sees you and he calls you. You need to hear that. This morning. Because in an age where we can spend hours scrolling through the masks of others' lives and the persona that they put out, we take very little time to actually ask the question who am I really, and what does God really see about me? where we so easily can mask the reality of our own lives. And that sounds negative and only masking the negative things, but hang out with any middle school group long enough, and I've come to know as an adult that we're all just 12-year-olds that have grown up, that we too hide not just our weaknesses, but also our strengths so that others would see us different than we really or you need to know that God sees you exactly as you really are, and he calls you anyways. He doesn't have a moment where he is surprised at what he finds. He knows it all, and he says, that one is mine. He sees this with Peter and John and Andrew and James. He saw them doing their job, casting their net, seeing as fishermen. He knows what's going to happen. Y'all, Jesus made them. He knows exactly what they're about and what they will not be about and how he's going to have to redeem them and work through them. He sees you as well. But not only does he see you, he sees them and he calls them and he calls them to follow him. Look at verse 17. Mark writes, And Jesus said to them, Okay, so just for a moment, picture that everything about you that you don't ever want to be made known is known by God, because it is. And in that moment, God sees you, and then he calls out to you, and he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. 
look at the language here. Look at the language here. Follow me. If you're a Greek nerd or whatever, this is a, 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 an adjectival command. He's like, following me will lead you to become fishers of men. It doesn't translate well. Okay, just follow me. That's the Follow me, and you will become a fisher of men. Jesus is helping them see, if you follow me, if you make this direction, the decision of your life will be something different than you are doing right now. It'll be related to what you're doing right now. God made these guys. He knows how they know how to do what they do because he made them to do what they do. He made them, but he wants to help them see that I made you like you are so you can do just more than you can do. A decision that leads to a direction. When I was 16, I was watching the Olympics. They're coming up, and I'm watching as people qualify this morning, uh, that doesn't matter, um, uh, uh, as people qualify for the Summer Olympics, and uh, I was watching and I saw um, uh, the Olympic triathlon, because like apparently that was the most entertaining thing they could put on, uh, was the triathlon, and it was the like half marathon part, and I was watching this and I thought, how hard could it be to run a half marathon, right? Like, you just run until you're done, and, um, and I thought it was tough. Uh, I'd never trained for a half marathon. I thought I was somewhat athletic because I played sports. And um, just to be honest, in my twisted mind, it was the women's event. And I thought, I could beat them, you know? And so I found out what the time was. And I got a $5 bill. And I put it in my board shorts pocket. I was in Florida. And uh, I mapped out on MapQuest um, the, uh, uh, like a 13-mile run. And I thought, okay. And I got my little watch and I set it and I just started running and thought, okay, there's, I'll stop at the little champ. Anyone from Florida? Little champ? No? Okay, just me. All right, there we go, Anthony. That's right, 904. And uh, uh, go Jags. And so I thought, there's a little champ right there and I'll just stop there. I'll grab a Gatorade. Uh, it's only 13 miles, right? How many water stops could you need? And so, uh, and then I'll just make my way, make my way home. And um, I, I want you to know, man, I completed that. I did. Uh, I didn't walk for weeks afterwards, but I, com- I completed 13.1 miles because when you're 16, you can do that. Uh, if I tried to do that now, I would just die. It's just what would happen. I would die, and um, you guys would get a new location, Pastor, and that's about, that's about it, right? That, that's, that's what I did. I, was, I, was, I couldn't walk for weeks. I was so deeply, desperately under prepared because it, it turns out that um, the decision to do a half marathon ought to uh, produce not just a moment, spur of the moment, night of running a little bit, but you actually have to work your way up to get there, right? I know this is shocking. This is shocking for some of you. You actually have to um, know how your body responds you have to actually plan out hydration. Lena, as a nutritionist, right? I don't know. She'll help you later, maybe. I don't know. Like, you have to actually like, plan out your nutrition. You, you have to um, know not just how much to take, but when to take it for maximum performance. You have to stretch. <laughs> Who stretches when you're 16? You have to stretch so that nothing happens. And then on top of that, afterwards, there's like a whole recovery process 
that does not involve a Nintendo 64, because that's what I had when I was right? That, just, that does not involve sitting in front of a screen doing nothing in order for your body to come back down. And the problem was I had no idea of that process when I made the decision to run a half marathon. You might be saying, why in the world are you telling me all of this? Well, so you can know that um, I regularly make spur-of-the-moment decisions, and they rarely turn out to be wise. That's a thing. That's how I am. But also because there is a idea, an idea in the Christian life of both how you are based on the decision you make to follow Jesus and the process that that implies because of the decision to follow Jesus. It comes out in ways like this. You are both brand new in Christ and being made new. Did you know that when you accept, when you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you confess your sin, you are both made completely holy, blameless, beyond reproach in Christ in that moment, and also being made holy as God is holy. You are both made alive and learning how to live in the fullness of that life in Christ. You are both brought into the light, uh, into the marvelous light of God, and also learning how to walk out of the darkness in that light. You are both made brand new and are being made new. There is a process to the Christian life, which is fantastic news for these guys, because when they follow Jesus, they are not complete yet, though God in Christ has made them completely complete. They are both positionally followers of Christ and in the process of following Christ. And here's what I, why you need to know that. Because the call to follow Jesus really is a decision that yields the direction of your life of continuing to follow him. And what it looks like for you and for me to follow Jesus has some similarities. But God has made you to live out your call in following him different than me. Your following Jesus probably will not result in being a 34-year-old male pastor at First Baptist Church of Norfolk on Volvo location. Your following Jesus probably will not look like Peter or James or John or Andrew as Young, uh, 20 to 30-something-year-old Middle Eastern men with Galilean accents. Your following Jesus will look like how God has made you, except you, without sin, as God has both made you sinless and positioned before him, and in a process of putting off sin after sin after sin, so that you can be the full measure of who God has made you in glorifying him. Adam and Eve were not the same person, but made exactly in the image of God. Peter is not Andrew, 
Who is not James? Who is not John? Yet all of them fulfilling their ministry in the same direction, but a little bit different as God has wired them to be. Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, completely different ministry, looks a little bit different than all of these guys. And here is my point. When God calls you to follow him, he knows exactly what he got. And he got it on purpose for the sake of using you to fulfill and honor and bring him glory like only you can. You see, these four guys had nothing to offer God. And God knew exactly what he would do, what they would do. He called them anyways and used them all in different ways, though the same direction of glorifying Jesus. How freeing is that as a follower of Christ? That your, your, the aim of your life, the aim of your life, is not to be like Tim Whitney. Y'all ought to praise God about that. <laughs> the aim of your life is not to be like Billy Graham. The aim of your life is not to be like, I don't even know, my mind is going blank. The aim of your life is to be the one that God has created you to be because he saved you as you really are, as you continue to follow and pursue him. And it might look a little different than me, just like it looks a little different than these guys, but it'll look exactly like God designed you to be in all the fullness he designed you to be in because you have been made in the image of God and in his call for you to follow him, he sees you, he knows you, and he says, you follow me. You follow me. You follow me. Following Jesus is a decision in your life that yields a continual direction of day after day following Jesus so that you can bring him glory and honor in the way that you can and I cannot. And he gets glory from everybody in all of the ways that we can fulfill him, fulfill the glory that he's designed us to give him together. Or in maybe a little bit more uh, terms that the Bible uses often, that every member of the body serves a function. And that your function may look a little different than mine, but we are all working together to glorify Jesus, who is the head of all things. And for many of you, this isn't a brand new thought. You know you're a little bit weird or different. The temptation, however, is to use this reality to justify not just something that's strange about us or our strength, but to justify sin. This is how I am made, therefore, that's okay and a part of me. And that's not at all what's going on. The process of following Jesus is continuing to realize how God has wired you to glorify him as you can, as he's designed you, while also realizing that there is sin in your life that ought to be cut off, not in a shameful way, but to know that God saw that in you, he knew he'd have to deal with that in you, and he called you to glorify him anyways. You see, it's freeing as a Christian because 
So often we disqualify ourselves from serving God and bringing Him glory and honor because we have weakness and sin, and the gospel says He knew that about you anyways. Not as an excuse to keep it, but rather as an excuse to worship and serve through it, that God sees you, He knows you, He calls you, and He calls you to follow Him but not just for a moment. Once again, look at the text. Look at the text. He sees you and he calls you to keep following him. If there's a moment in your life where you believe you have arrived, you may be doing the Christian life wrong. Look at verse uh, 16 through 18 again. We're going to just read this whole thing. Now with the lens of, G, of God declaring his good news that those, who can, that those who hear him can believe and trust and follow him because it had been so long since anyone had heard from a prophet of God and that Jesus is going along calling these people who are just like regular people who got issues, who have weaknesses, who have faults and failures, people like me and you, he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He knew who they were. He knew what they were about. And Jesus said to them, follow me. He called them to follow him, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then verse 18, and immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Do you see the flow of this text? In the verse before, the gospel of God, repent and believe in God. Turn from what you're doing and now follow God and believe his promises. And now these guys show up and Jesus is talking them to them and what they're doing and says, what, what you're doing, what you're doing, I see what you're doing, I know who, who you are, now turn from that and follow me. They hear this call and immediately they change what they were doing and they follow him. Now the context of this call is a little more complex than Mark makes it. In fact, if you look at the chronology, chronologically rather, of how Jesus and Peter's interaction work together, this is not the first time that they have seen or heard from Jesus. In John chapter 1, we, we learn that Peter and Andrew and James and John were those who went out to John the Baptist to hear his preaching, and they were there when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and says, this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And they talk with him, and they interact with him, and then they go back to being fishermen. In Luke's account, which is the third time that Jesus calls Peter, uh, uh, it's the, the episode, if you're familiar and been around church for a while, where, G, where Peter is fishing and uh, Jesus calls to them from the shore and says, you know, cast your net on the other side. And he's like, we've been out here all day long. We're not catching anything. And Jesus is like, just believe me and do it. And so they cast their net on the other side. And there's so many fish that they have to call the other boat to get all of the fish in. They almost sink the boat. And 
uh, 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 Peter gets on the seashore in Luke 5, and he says, like, I, I am sinful. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I know that about you. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That's the third call. This second call that Mark is referring to chronologically as this all plays out comes after Peter understands that Jesus is the Messiah, but before he is told through that account in Luke 5 that he will be the one, one of the apostles and leaders of the church. This is a call to engage and equip himself for ministry. This is a continual process of Jesus calling Peter to be who he has made him to be, even though right now he only sees himself as just a fisherman. But the problem with Peter and with all of us is, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can get distracted on the journey and pathway of following Jesus and find ourselves off the path completely. Peter's going to find himself there. We talked about that earlier. He will, and you've probably found yourself there before. We're somewhere along the way of Jesus is calling you again and again and again to follow him and to follow him and to follow him. You get off the journey and somewhere different, and before you know it, you're lost in cold, directionless, not understanding how you got there in the first place. Uh, one of the things I like to do, uh, I, I enjoy hiking. I really do. Um, because I uh, meet all sorts of weird people. Um, in fact, the last uh, hike that I went on, and there's just something manly about, you know, not showering for days at a time and uh, climbing up and down mountains and all that kind of stuff. It's weird. Uh, the last time I met this really weird guy, I actually have a picture of him right here. You might, um, there's that guy. And um, he said he leads worship by day. I don't know. And so uh, he, was, uh, he was a lot of fun. I'm just kidding. That's Lance. That's a worship leader. You're welcome. He didn't know I was doing that. That's good. Um, but one of, the reasons, one of the reasons that I do is, uh, number one, because sometimes I just need to get away and walk. Uh, I just do. I have an office job, and I'm wired different than to be in an office all the time. Walls make me feel closed in. And so just to, like, go walk is really healthy for me but also because there's something wonderful about um, uh, engaging in God's creation as he designed it to be. In fact, uh, just a, a few, uh, two nights later, we were passing by this, and that's probably the coolest picture I've ever taken, uh, at least on the Appalachian Trail. Like, just, just beauty as it was designed to be. It was right after a storm had blown through. Well, that storm that we slept through the night before where Lance was sitting getting his uh, sweet picture taken, you're welcome once again, uh, we started uh, earlier uh, that day and ended at a shelter and a set-up camp, and about 5.30 that morning, we saw two hikers' headlamps pass by the path as it went, didn't think anything of it. Uh, woke up later, uh, continued to get ready, got our packs loaded up, and then we had um, a couple-hour trek to the top of where we were going next for the next overlook. I got up there, and if you've never been on the trail, what you do is you, um, on the Appalachian Trail, it's white markers, and every so often you see another white blaze, and you just know that you're on the trail that way. If it's been a while since you've seen one, you realize you're off trail, and you're just making stuff up, 
And that's not good because there are bears and things. And so you try to make your way back to the trail, back to where you last saw so that you can continue to reorient and make your way forward. Or if you're awesome, you get a map and navigate and uh, pick some waypoints and find where you are. But I'm not that awesome. And so, uh, so I just use the white blazes as I go. Well, after we went up, we started to come down and we stopped for water because it was pouring down rain, like 32 degrees or something like that. Um, and we got into a shelter. And in that shelter were these two people, the people we saw earlier, um, lips blue, dazed, completely out of it. Uh, and if you know anything about hypothermia, you realize quickly they were in bad shape in the middle of nowhere with the wrong gear, no gear, uh, the wrong clothing, all cotton, heavy, uh, uh, had lost their way. And so we began to quickly just figure out how in the world can we warm them up. We made them some tea. We gave them some clothes. Uh, we helped them get warm again. Uh, two Marines randomly showed up, and uh, they were useful. And so... Um, <laughs> And so uh, they, um, after we got them warmed up and resettled and they were talking okay again, uh, we had a long way to go for our next thing, and they happened to be going back to the parking lot they started from. And uh, I asked them, like, what, what happened? How did you get so turned around? Well, they started out with the wrong stuff completely, didn't have the right equipment, didn't take the time to know how to navigate got to where the lookout was, got cold and confused and turned around, wandered around for the next seven hours in no uh, inadequate clothing, soaking wet, 30-something degrees, degrees. They said, we knew we were in trouble when we found this random lady in a poncho uh, who looked at us and said, y'all are going to die, and then <laughs> turned around and left. Like this. And what happened was, as they described it, they went up one side, were supposed to come back down, but then found the wrong side of the trail, continued on, got off trail, and were in the middle of nowhere and happened to happen upon this shelter as they were sitting there freezing their tails off. Now, here's, here's why you need to hear that story, because it visualizes how easy it is to get confused and get off the process and pathway of God's work in your life to make you like Him and to follow Him. That what happened was, for just a second, they got distracted, and then they got distracted again, and then life took over, and functions took over, and they couldn't think straight even if they wanted to. You see, if we sound like the heroes of that story, we're not, because what happened was the morning before we were coming through a parking lot, or a few hours before we stopped for that night, and we were out of water, and we're looking for water, and some uh, nice stranger had a bunch of water and refilled our stuff so we could stop where we were. You see, that person, those people were able to be saved simply because someone came along and helped us reorient ourselves, equip ourselves properly to be properly on the path to help somebody else out. Here's how this applies. You see, you are uniquely called by God, and all of us are uniquely called. You are uniquely equipped by God. 
to do ministry and glorify Him like nobody else can. And in the same way that someone else was able to serve us well so that we could serve others, God in His design has the strangeness about you and the strengths about you that make you you so that you can use those things to glorify him in a way that nobody else can. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you will find yourself off the path. And what God wants you to know in Mark chapter 1 verses 16 through 20 is that he sees you. He knows how you are. He's called you. He's called you to follow him and he's called you to keep following him. And so here's the question of application. Where in your life have you been hesitating to follow Jesus? Where in your life have you been hesitating to follow Jesus? Like Jesus knows who you are. And if you're not careful and don't know the gospel well enough, you just might be tempted to hide who you are from God himself. And you can't turn from what you don't realize you're not on. Where in your life do you keep from following Jesus? And as we respond, would you take the time to ask God to help you get back on the path of following Him because it is a decision that yields a direction. You've got to keep following, keep looking, keep staying on the path, keep going, and watch as He not only has made you alive, but continues to allow you to live in Him. That He has not only made you holy, but is making you holy as you follow Jesus, that he has not only called you in a moment to salvation, but now is with you as you work out your salvation in fear and trembling, where he has not only called you on mission, but has a unique ministry for you to be on that I will never fulfill, and you will never fulfill if you don't stop and get back on the path. Where have you been holding back from following Jesus.